Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out all the exciting things that Osiris Media is up to. That is OsirisPod.com. In this episode of Across the Margin, the podcast, I present an interview with Henry Putnam, University Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, Keith Ballou. His books include Dying in the City of Blues, How Cancer Crossed the Color Line, and Pain, A Political History. Along with Dr. Anthony Fauci and others, he won the 2021 Dan David Prize. Wailu is also the author of Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette, which is the focus of this episode here today. In Pushing Cool, he tells the intricate and poignant story of menthol cigarettes for the first time. He pulls back the curtain to reveal the hidden persuaders who shaped menthol buying habits and racial markets across America. The world of tobacco marketers, consultants, psychologists, and social scientists, as well as black lawmakers and civic groups, including the NAACP. Today, most black smokers buy menthols. And calls to prohibit their circulation hinge on a history of the industry's targeted racial marketing. In 2009, when Congress banned flavored cigarettes as criminal enticements to encourage youth smoking, menthol cigarettes were also slated to be banned. Through a detailed study of internal tobacco industry documents, Weilu exposes why they weren't and how they remained so popular with black smokers. Spanning a century, Pushing Cool reveals how the twin deceptions of health and black affinity for menthol were crafted and how the industry's disturbingly powerful narrative has endured to this day. In this episode, Keith and I discuss exactly why menthols were pushed so vigorously upon black urban communities and we assess how increased governmental restrictions on cigarettes and their advertisements actually heightened this push. We explore the lies about the health benefits of menthols used to market the cigarettes. We point out a plethora of surprising public figures who have consistently pushed back against a ban on menthols. And we examine the link in the fight to ban menthol cigarettes to e-cigarettes and a whole lot more. Pushing Cool is absolutely eye-opening and important. And I have no doubt you will learn a great deal from this interview with Keith Willow. Again, really appreciate having you on. But uh, so I know you grew up in um, New York City in the 1970s, a time period I'm very fascinated with, by the way, the very interesting period for New York. But I was wondering if you can kind of kick us off and you kind of set the scene in your book in the same way, um, kind of how how it was like there. And, uh, you know, this was the era of black exploitation um, and you know, I was also thinking you could also speak to what you were seeing around when it comes to uh, advertisements around the city to really set the table here. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I opened the book with a scene from my early years when I was, you know, about eight, nine, ten years old, growing up in the Bronx and then Queens, New York, and um, you know, the the advertising landscape was a lot different, um, and tobacco billboards were incredibly prominent um, in the neighborhoods I lived in. And um, one of the distinctive features is that it's through those advertisements, both on billboards, but also in magazines like Jet and Ebony, Black-themed magazines, that I became aware of the, the pitch, uh, the push of menthol smoking in Black communities around the same time that, you know, other, the term Black exploitation was coming into, well, it was being invented. The idea that, you know, commercial enterprises were developing a particular idea of Blackness uh, that was uh, building commercial success, uh, movies like Superfly. Um, and, and so the genre of film seemed to kind of echo the genre of, um, of, of, of the, the images that one saw on these billboards. And then what I end up saying in the book is we moved to New Jersey, suburban New Jersey, when I was in high school, and and suddenly, like I said, where are all the billboards? <laughs> yeah. um, and not just billboards. Where are the black themed billboards? Yeah. And but you could go down the street to um, to Newark, which was not so far from where we were, and you could see those billboards again. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that you know, in so in a sense, the book has been a, many many years in gestation because I've been kind of intrigued by right. that that geographical and racial disparity in what I call the push. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in this time period, there was, as you're describing this clear and very methodical push going on, um, you know, to black urban communities. And I think the first thing to unpack or to ask you about is why were black communities targeted so fiercely? So it would, it's interesting because um, I like to say I came into the menthol story in chapter three of its history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because if you asked people in the tobacco industry in 1960 or 61 or 62 when I was born, is there a black affinity for menthol cigarette smoking? People would look at you uh, quizzically <laughs> and they would say, what are you talking about? Yeah, because yeah. they understood menthol smoking as something that promised health. Mm. Uh, because menthol was seen by many smokers as medication. Yeah. And so it's, it, the pivot happens in the early 1960s. Mm. And, and the pivot happens because of a confluence of factors. Um, menthol smoking had always benefited from what the industry called health scares. Mm. That is when uh, the linkage between cancer and smoking became more prominent smokers looked for what they considered to be safe cigarettes and menthol filled that gap mm -hmm. uh, or answered that need. It's a deceptive answer, but it answered people's needs and the industry pushed it as kind of safer than the normal cigarette. Right. So the 60, 1964, you see this, the Surgeon General's report that mm -hmm. heightens anxiety about smoking. And at the same time, uh, menthols, which have been pushed aggressively to younger smokers, are under attack. The industry is under attack for marketing to youth. Mm -hmm. And and a couple of companies, particularly um, the makers of Cool, start to sort of they pivot very aggressively 
because they're losing certain markets, which they see as lucrative, the youth market. They're under stress from government regulators, and they pivot aggressively to Black-themed advertising, particularly in the summer of 1964. So it's actually a set of factors, the loss of some markets, the Mm -hmm. need for, and then you have the demographic changes of cities. That is to say, cities are becoming more concentrated African-American, and certain of these companies start to regard these as poverty markets yeah. and growth markets. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this confluence of the loss of markets and the search for new markets that leads to the racialization of menthol smoking. Yeah, it was really um, eye-opening, just the phrasing you, you use where um, these were unprotected communities, meaning they were open to exploitation. And it was really um wild to see and you mentioned how these companies were shameless at the time and you know i think they hide that a little bit better now but madison avenue was just this is something um you know with greater social adversity this was something they would look at as a bigger opportunity to make more money and profit off people who are struggling so much and that's just all mind-blowing to me well, I must tell you that, um, you know, one of the things that makes this book possible is the lawsuits that mm. were brought against the industry in the late 1990s. And so you can actually look back, you can look behind the curtain mm. and you can see the way companies thought about adversity and social distress yeah. as opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so the example um, that comes to mind that I speak about in the introduction is a company that, uh, uh, consultants that see that like menthol smoking is more prevalent among urban African-American men who also are uh, in part of the drug problem of the 1960s, the increasing heroin problem. And so they say, well, why, since menthols are associated with drug use, why don't we just see this as an opportunity oh, and, and come up with a brand which mm-hmm. we'll call halfway? Yeah. Because people think about menthols as a drug and having a kick. And so it's like what I find both fascinating and disturbing about looking behind the curtain is that everything that we might regard as like as, as, as uh, social problems or problems to be solved, Mm -hmm. the industry saw as opportunity. So if a a young generation in the 1960s is alienated from their parents, Mm -hmm. then how do you use alienation to sell cigarettes? (laughs) That halfway, I'm glad you brought up that example. That was truly mind-blowing. And it speaks to the the lack of shame um, that I was speaking to and just really diving in fully on it. Um, Something to kind of discuss a little bit and kind of relating to that as well. is how was it menthols were marketed to the, uh, you know, especially the younger black uh, communities in the way, I mean, I'm speaking here to um, the idea of pushing it as uh, something uh, that that speaks to black determination or or free choice. That was kind of the angle they were taking, correct? Yeah, that, that became an angle that they took mostly when menthols, um, when, when the targeted marketing became um, the focus of criticism okay. from okay. those who said that you're really aggressively pushing this detrimental mm-hmm. health, uh, the, this detrimental product on young Black people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the way the industry responded is by, and this is part of the, 
the difficulty with the men extracting menthol from black communities is that they allied themselves with civil rights groups mm -hmm. and with uh, newspaper publishers who benefited from the advertising, mm -hmm. who all spoke the language of black self-determination. So they defended menthol's place or the billboard as an act of free speech and, um, and, and also as a kind of a statement about authentic black identity, which of course is what the industry was also doing. Yeah. So, and, and these are the kinds of strategies that the industry used in collaboration with their supporters to keep menthol in place, especially when criticism uh, became more heated. Yeah, there was, um, that kind of leads me to something I wanted to ask where it was, there was some kind of bad actors in this, uh, uh, this decade long push of the cool. And a few of them you would, would assume, and um, you know, I think many do would, would be looking out for the black community. And I'm speaking to one in particular who comes up a whole bunch in, 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 in your book, and that's Al Sharpton, um, who has helped push back on the ban of menthols for years now. And it's a little surprising to me just because I didn't know the history until I read your book, which is such an eye opening thing. But uh, I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, you know, I love they I know our listeners would love to hear what what Al was doing, but I'm also curious, um, you know, what was his stake in it? I know he was accused by one um, uh, assemblywoman not too long ago of, you know, kind of being bought by big tobacco. Was that the case or I'm just you know, I'd love to hear you talk about Al a little bit. His yeah, well, well, let me put it into broader context. Um, you know, the the way in which markets were made and secured by the smoking industry, by the tobacco industry, was not entirely because of internal uh, studies or aggressive marketing. It's also in relationship to um, uh, heavy lobbying, mm -hmm. uh, often, uh, and, and alliances, so with uh, politicians who are there to help secure menthol's place. So for instance, in 2009, when, um, when Congress finally gave FDA jurisdiction over tobacco products, mm -hmm. that, that recently, right? Yeah, yeah. FDA didn't have. Mm -hmm. um, and banned flavored cigarettes as illegitimate enticements for young people to start smoking. Menthol Menthols bad. were exempted. Mm -hmm. And menthols were exempted because the Congressional Black Caucus, some of whom were heavily financed and supported uh, by the tobacco industry, mm -hmm. split on the question of whether menthols should be banned or not. Mm -hmm. And one, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that it's the industry support that kind of laid the groundwork for that menthol exclusion, mm -hmm. which is, uh, if it weren't for that, we would not be having this discussion. Mm -hmm. Menthols would have been banned alongside strawberry. And mm -hmm. so, so there's a long history of um, the industry's allies in government mm -hmm. and in civil rights um, mm -hmm. at a time when the national the uh, NAACP was fiscally ailing. Mm -hmm. The industry supported the NAACP. Um, and, and a lot of those industries have seen tobacco as an ally because they have supported so many Black causes. Mm -hmm educational causes, the United Negro College Fund, um, at, at a time when cities were ailing, uh, the Cool Jazz Festival. Yeah, I was say jazz. Um, yeah. And so, so there's this kind of history of a very a perverse alliance between mm -hmm. civil rights groups who see, for instance, uh, the industry as an economic lifeline. Mm 
rather than uh, a long-term detrimental health impact on the community. And so Al Sharpton is part of that tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but at the same time, you know, increasingly some of those groups like the NAACP have kind of seen the light. They have changed their position. They've come around recently, right? Yeah. They've come around. They've realized that, you know, this is, this is, this is a, um, this is a horrible bargain Mm -hmm. um, to trade sort of short-term economic, um, you know, in revenue for the long-term uh, de- decimating the long-term health of 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 the community. Yeah, yeah. So so that's how you know Al Sharpton is as he says. Um, I take money from everyone, and he he says you know it it doesn't it doesn't influence his position. And the other argument that they make, which is not entirely ridiculous, is that if you ban menthol, Black then Black. that will lead to kind of increased police surveillance of people who are smoking menthols illegally. Of course, it's not true yep. because the banning of menthol is really only about the sale of menthols mm-hmm. by establishments. It's not about, you know, whatever you choose to smoke. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that, I had to think a lot about that argument, too, of how it could lead to increased in policing or you know, things like that. That was, that was very interesting, especially we'll talk about in a moment what it led to the Eric Gardner case and things like that. But the depth of research um, and calculation by Madison Avenue firms and, and psychological consulting groups, um, consulting groups from Richmond, Virginia uh, to Winston-Salem, it's absolutely intense. I mean, there was, you even pointed to uh, researchers um, gathering insights from the streets, actually going and talking to uh, you know, into stores and talking, finding out buyers trends. I mean, the amount of work, and I know you bring up Myron Johnson from Philip Morris a few times, um, amount of research they put in is vast and, and just on many different levels. I'd love to hear you speak on that for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think this, the, the, the new story that this book tells among many is that the, the supporters, the people who made this possible are folks who were doing social science research mm-hmm. uh, on, as you say, on the streets, understanding how to, how to actually influence behavior. So we live in a world today of influencers <laughs> online. Well, they kind of invented mm-hmm. the, the logic of influence. So mm-hmm. for instance, it took social psychologists like Ernest Dichter, who, who created a company called the Institute for Motivational Research, mm-hmm. who uh, created many taglines like, you know, putting a tiger in your tank for uh, what used to be Esso and now Exxon. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he studied in the 60s how, how people's anxiety about cancer and about health were driving them to make compromises, to look for safe cigarettes, people who, and so for them, menthol was a a kind of a compromise cigarette. If you were anxious about smoking, but you didn't want to quit. So they studied social psychology. They studied things like with regard to kind of race uh, in the city. Uh, There's a company that went into St. Louis and studied where, where um, what, what they called centers of influence. Mm. And what they essentially argued is that black men in 1967 St. Louis don't watch television at the same extent white men do. Uh, they spend more time on the street hanging out with um, bellhops and um, uh, barbers and numbers runners. And they look to people on the street 
as centers of influence. So the goal of creating any new consumer pattern was to identify who these people were, these, these, these individuals who they called kingfish, mm. and give them samples mm-hmm. that they can then distribute. And that's how you, I mean, it's, it's drug dealing, yeah. right, in a, in a more sophisticated way. And so the, the archive that the, is available for anyone to, to look at right now from inside the industry is just filled with these documents about things like why the black cowboy for Philip Morris doesn't mean the same thing for black men mm-hmm. as the white cowboy does for white men. And as a result, why it is that Marlboro menthols have never been as successful mm-hmm. as cool. And so they're studying gender, they're studying masculinity, they're studying um, health, and they're studying social psychology at a level that, to, to be honest, completely blew me away, yeah, right? Man. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, I like to say that if they were doing this to study anything other than like how to sell a cigarette, yep. it would be admirable. Yeah. Because they understood Black communities mm-hmm. about as well as any like social scientists did of the time period if they could use those powers for good <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah it's really it's phenomenal it's phenomenal in a scary scary way um mm-hmm. your book um it, it, it i mean it blew my mind on many levels and just you were speaking to it but uh really so when you reminded um you know readers of the uh, uh that methyl cigarettes were at play when uh you know the murder of george floyd and of course you know in relation to eric gardner and yeah also uh, i was just kind of truly captivated captivated when you explored the idea of the tragic convergence and that's of uh, menthol of coronavirus um, of policing and even asthma and um, so what you talked about here and it was just it was it was really to kind of pull the lens out a little bit it was a bigger picture way to look at it that um, black lives have been suffocated over different scales and in different ways over minutes over weeks, over years, and over decades. And I, I would love to hear you speak on that, this tragic convergence of these, of these different, different things that are all, um, you know, kind of sucking the breath out of Black lives in America. Yeah, I must say that um, writing the conclusion of the book uh, in 2020, um, right around the time of George Floyd's murder, murder uh, kind of compelled me to think about how is it that the story of menthol is connected? And, and, you know, one of the news stories pointed out that he was murdered outside of a store known for selling like the best, best menthol cigarettes in Minneapolis. Uh, it's a shocking moment. And, and at the same time, COVID was raging. And it struck me, struck me that these three tragedies, um, like a death at the policeman's you know, knee, uh, which resulted in the cry, I can't breathe, um, the disproportionate cries of I can't breathe because of COVID at a time when it was becoming clear that African-Americans, people of color, were disproportionately affected and dying. Mm. And then you have this kind of story of menthol, which over decades, results in emphysema, lung cancer, and the decimation of um, one's breathing capacity, I can't breathe. So they all seem to kind of converge 
at this particular moment as I was writing this. And it struck me that, you know, the, the difference, of course, is a timescale difference, right? I mean, George Floyd is murdered over the course of minutes. Um, coronavirus takes, you know, maybe weeks mm. to take effect. Uh, but the but and then the menthol smoking is something that unfolds and it's 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 detrimental impact on your health takes decades but they all are the result of different kinds of exploitation and different kinds of kind of systemic assaults on black people's lives in urban contexts and the thing that i think is striking is you know we know about kind of police and policing and um, kind of institutional racism that emerges in the police world. We also know that, you know, COVID, the, the disparities are the result of disparities in residential living, in, uh, in, in economic opportunity, in access to healthcare, which have been long time in the building. And for me, the menthol cigarette is comparable. That is to say, you need to look back at the decades of both the targeted marketing and the laser, laser, you know, beam focus on urban poor populations as poverty markets, as available for exploitation. Mm -hmm. And the intense study of the social psychology of poverty in many ways to understand that this is not, um, this is no accident. Mm -hmm. The idea yeah. that menthol was there at the scene of George Floyd's murder. So, so that's why for me, um, the story kind of just the, the conclusion wrote itself. And the tragedy, I think, is a layered one. Um, and, and it kind of ultimately led to this conclusion that like obviously the menthol cigarette needs to be banned, not just because of the history of targeted marketing, but because of the inherent deceit uh, that has been really part of um, the industry's uh, marketing uh, over multiple decades. Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of um, uh, what could be looked at as kind of like a new menthol in town and uh, in the e-cigarettes. And I really mm -hmm. never kind of pieced this together until I read this. I never, you know, I kind of never put them in the same box, even though uh, the push for them being banned is putting together at this point. But e-cigarettes and menthol, um, they have a link um, and they're similar in a lot of ways, and especially now as, as, as they, you know, people are looking to, to kind of stomp them both out. I was, I was looking and I was hoping you could talk a little about that link and uh, kind of how they've been put together in the same box uh, for the fight for banning them. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the FDA is in a funny position because they're trying to, given this new authority, they're trying to distinguish between, you know, what makes and the e-cigarettes kind of came in with a promise that they were similar going promise. to be, what's that? A similar promise to menthol though, right? A very similar promise, yeah, right? That they were yeah. going to answer the problem mm -hmm. that regular cigarettes cause. So okay. when menthols first came around in the 1920s and 30s, they came into the market as a, um, a remedy for smoker's cough. Mm -hmm. A remedy, you know, if you needed a break from your regular cigarette, smoke a menthol. And it was all about like a, a deceitful health promise. Mm -hmm. E-cigarettes came in in the same way, right, that with this idea that, you know, if you're looking to quit smoking, 
here is a nicotine alternative that doesn't come with tobacco, mm-hmm. right? Which is what is associated with killing people. And yes, you know, you may still be addicted to nicotine, but it's a more healthful addiction. And, and they marketed themselves as a smoking cessation tool. But the truth of the matter is, is that both of these were similarly deceptive. Menthol smoking um, ultimately kind of just in some ways was a mask, right? So one of the things that the scientists, even in the industry said in the 1920s and 30s, is that you know menthol gives you the feeling like your airways are opening or your congestion is clearing, yeah, but it doesn't. Yeah, it's just a sensation. And similarly, you might think that, you know, um, that e-cigarettes are more healthful, but it's just substituting one form of addiction for another. And so the industry has been taken to task more recently, uh, the e-cigarette industry by the FDA for essentially taking this promise of smoking cessation and then kind of secretly marketing to youth. Uh, through all different kinds of um, stratagems, and in some, in a similar way that the industry, the smoking industry, has been accused of, which is to say, you know, well, we don't. They, they publicly they say we don't market to children. We we o- we only market to adults. But then you know you look at Joe Camel mm-hmm. and you look at the cartoons, and and you realize that they are marketing to children or have been in the past. And I think the same story is playing out over a much shorter period of time with the e-cigarette. Yeah, absolutely. Similarities were striking though, just across many, many levels. So where does the, um, the, the fight to ban menthols stand right now? I mean, I know the, the book is extremely current. I was just curious if you had any information of what's happening right now. Well, what I understand that's happening right now is the FDA having um, declared not for the first time and not for the second time, for the third time mm-hmm. that they're banning menthol cigarettes um, is in a period of public comment. Okay. Uh, and they have promised a decision before next April. Mm. In the meantime, um, they have been sued. In the past, they've been sued by the industry for their decision to ban menthol, and that's been taken to court. But right now, they've been taken to court by the advocates uh, for banning menthol and asking them, why, why are you taking so long? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting for that to play out at the federal level. At state levels and at cities, we're seeing cities moving ahead, um, regardless of whether the states have moved. So I think uh, San Jose was the most recent, very large city to ban menthol sales. San Francisco as well? San Francisco as well. And some states like Massachusetts have entirely. Um, And so you might say that the discussion about menthol bans is operating on a lot of different fronts Mm -hmm. uh, while we're waiting for the FDA to decide. Uh. Well, I, uh, it's, it's this this book is so fascinating on so many levels. I I, I learned so much. I actually just finished watching um, Dope Sick. It's that mm-hmm. that, that series about the oxycotton uh, crisis, which was so eye opening. I there's like I just kept thinking this is also you know that's such a fascinating story. I could see play out in that well. All these players you know come into just the insidious meetings they were having, the whole thing, and it just all in this remarkable, fascinating book. And it also really widened the scope for me in a way that I wasn't thinking about the whole story of racial capitalism as a whole, which was absolutely captivating. So incredibly impressive book. And I'm really, really glad we got the chance to talk about it here. 
thank you very much. You really uh, had a terrific conversation. It's hard to understand There was love in this man I'm sure all would agree That his misery was this woman and things Now Freddie's dead That's what I say This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.